I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Vedanta is a very significant and popular school of thought or tradition within the larger religious tradition of Hinduism or Sanatana Dharma. Outside of the Indian context, the Advaita school or non-dualistic school of Vedanta is probably the most famous, but as we've seen in previous episodes, this is by no means the whole of the tradition. In another good showcase of how diverse religions can be, even within specific schools of thought or traditions of a religion like Hinduism, there can be such differences of opinion that they can be seen as being the complete polar opposites of each other. Yes, we have now reached the third and final part in our trilogy about the main schools of Vedanta. We've gone from the absolute monism or non-dualism of Shankara to the absolute dualism of Madhva. The school associated with Madhva, often known as Madhvacharya, the Acharya being an honorific title meaning something like teacher, is usually referred to as Dvaita Vedanta, which can roughly be translated as the Vedanta of dualism. It heavily challenged the doctrines of its non-dualistic leaning predecessors and came to have an enormous impact and influence on Hinduism. 
Before we get into it, I think it's good to have a bit of a recap first. As always, I of course recommend that you watch the previous episodes in this series to get a fuller grasp of the context in which this conversation takes place, but let's summarize what we've learned so far. Vedanta is essentially an exegetical scholarly tradition within Hinduism, primarily concerned with interpreting the Vedas, specifically the Upanishads, as well as other texts like the Brahma Sutras and the Bhagavad Gita. And as this tradition started to grow a couple of centuries into the common era, various schools and interpretations arose, different scholars who interpreted these textual sources in different ways. The Upanishads and Brahma Sutras, which is kind of a commentary on the first, as well as the Vedantic scholars, are concerned with a few key concepts. There is first the Brahman, the ultimate reality, the absolute or the one, the source of all things, including the different gods. Secondly, there is the Atman, or the self, both in terms of our individual selves, but also in the sense of a pure, transcendent, absolute or universal self, the reality of pure subjectivity. And while all the scholars of Vedanta dealt with these themes and concepts, they interpreted them and their relationship differently. The first example of a systematized school of Vedanta is associated with the figure Shankara, who likely lived in the 8th century. His school, known as Advaita Vedanta, was monistic. Brahman, a reality entirely without attributes, is the only thing that is. All things are in fact Brahman, forming a total oneness, and all experience or appearance of multiplicity or of things, including the self, being other than the Brahman, is the result of avidya, ignorance, and maya, illusion. The second figure that we have explored, Ramanuja, didn't like this at all and spent much of his life refuting Shankara's school. To him, Advaita robbed God, or Vishnu, of his rightful attributes and thus neglected rituals and devotional worship, or bhakti. Ramanuja, whose school is known as Vishishta Dvaita Vedanta, instead proposed that Brahman is identical to the god Vishnu with all of his attributes and rejected the attributeless Brahman of Shankara. The human worshipper needs God to be different from himself in order to worship him and receive his saving grace. However, he still held fast to a qualified form of monism by stating that all things are Brahman or Vishnu, but we are like parts of his body, he being the soul that moves the body. So it's both a kind of non-dualism, but one that still upholds a certain level of difference between God and human, and the importance of devotion, bhakti, for reaching liberation. And it is into this debate that Madhva is born and lives his life. He was born in the late 13th century, close to the city of Udupi in the modern state of Karnataka in southwestern India. He grows up and lives in an environment that is incredibly diverse in terms of religion and intellectual thought. Not only were there various schools of scholarly Hinduism, like the different movements of Vedanta already mentioned, but also other groups like the Shaivites, worshippers of Shiva, Jains, the atheistic Charvakas, and many more. Even the Muslims would have made their way into the region at this time. In other words, this was a pluralistic environment full of discussion and debate, something that likely influenced the later career of Madhva. He was born into a Brahmin, or priestly family, and thus early in his life engaged in studying the Vedas and later Vedanta under a teacher that was inclined specifically to Shankara's Advaita interpretation. But Madhva eventually left this master due to heavily disagreeing with the Advaita interpretation of the Upanishads. 
We see this happen a few times in his life, Madhva studying under a teacher of Vedanta, but breaking with him due to disagreement and instead eventually led his own path and developed a new school of interpretation. The events of Madhva's life follow a similar pattern to other hagiographical accounts of other sages. He became a sannyasin, or renunciant ascetic, during his teenage years and was exceptionally intellectually gifted. After studying and developing his own philosophy, he traveled and debated scholars from various different schools of thought and defeated them. He is said to have opened a few mathas, or monasteries, and there formed a community around him that would grow into great prominence. Madhva, much like Ramanuja before him, was heavily concerned with refuting the Advaita interpretation of Vedanta, instead leading his followers to a pure devotional worship of Vishnu, which according to him was the only way to liberation. He saw himself as having a great responsibility to lead people to God through correct interpretation, worship, and social order. Indeed, it appears that Madhva actually saw himself as an avatar or incarnation of the wind god Vayu, who is the son of Vishnu, thus serving an important role as an intermediary or guide for the people to reach God. This mission was not only theological and ontological, but also social. Indeed, as the scholar Deepak Sharma says, quote, Madhvacharya's theology is thus founded on the importance of taratamya, hierarchy, as evidenced in the prevailing systems of varna, class, and jati, caste. The centrality of social structure for Madhvacharya and maintenance of the status quo may be a reaction to the diversity and menace of rival Nastika, or non-Vedic traditions, in medieval Karnataka. Like any good Vedantic scholar, Madhva wrote a number of important works. The most important of these is probably, you guessed it, a commentary on the Brahma Sutra, as well as commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita and a various different uh, Upanishads. What is interesting about Madhva is that he not only wrote his great major commentary on the Brahma Sutras, his great Bhashya, but also three separate commentaries on it, which was quite unusual. And he also wrote independent treatises where he argued against the schools of Shankara's Advaita or Ramanuraj Vishishta Advaita and presenting his own ideas, which would become known as Dvaita Vedanta or dualistic Vedanta. So what are these arguments about, and what are the features of Madhva's own thought? Well, as I said earlier, all of Vedanta is essentially occupied with the same themes, but they interpret them and their relationships in different ways. And we can zoom out and look at the indigenous religions of India generally and come to a similar conclusion. Whether we are talking about many of the various Hindu traditions, or Jainism, or Buddhism, they all have a few things in common. Namely, ideas about samsara, the cycle of rebirths that all life forms go through, as well as karma, the force that determines the nature of that rebirth. Also common to the Indic religions is a common final goal, to be released from the wheel of samsara, to end one's cycle of rebirth and reach final liberation, which is known in Hinduism as moksha. So it's important to remember when we talk about these different schools of Vedanta that they are all essentially concerned with the same goal of reaching ultimate liberation or moksha. And all the different theological and ontological practical differences are simply different ways of finding the correct or at least most effective way of reaching that liberation. So, for example, very famously, Shankara's Advaita Vedanta had proposed that it was Jnana Yoga, or more properly pronounced Jnana Yoga, which is the yoga of knowledge, that was the prime way to reach moksha, right? To know, to, 
to reach knowledge of one's own identity, the self's identity with the Brahman. Everything is the Brahman. And to reach liberation, according to Shankara and the non-dualistic school of Advaita, is to realize and come to the, uh, the full knowledge of one's identity with the one Brahman. Rituals and deity worship, while not neglected entirely, become secondary in Advaita. At best, they are steps on the way to the actual solution, reaching the knowledge that there is only one thing, Brahman, and our self, or Atman, is identical to that Brahman. It is this concept that people like Ramanuja and especially Madhva was completely appalled by. This was the entirely wrong interpretation, according to them. To Madhva, the Brahman and Atman are not identical, not at all in fact, they are entirely separated and the only way to reach moksha is through devoted worship of God in the form of Vishnu. Like in the case with Ramanuja, it's difficult to talk about Madhva and his school of Dvaita Vedanta without making constant comparisons to the other schools. This is because Madhva's writings and his, well, all of his ideas are really in direct response to those other schools, and because of that, they are often best understood in relation to those other schools. This is the way that we can understand his ideas better by situating his ideas within that wider debate and discussion. The three main schools of Vedanta, Advaita, Vishishta Dvaita, and Dvaita, can be seen as existing on a spectrum where Advaita and Dvaita are each on opposite sides of that spectrum. In terms of ontology, Advaita teaches that all that is, is the attributeless Brahman. I am Brahman, you are the Brahman, the cat is the Brahman, this conversation even is Brahman. And all our experience of multiplicity or other than Brahman is only the result of superimposition or avyasa and ultimately not real, just like we mistake a rope to be a snake. Madhva's ontology is the very opposite of this. The common name of the school, Dvaita, meaning two or dual, suggests his position. The world to Madhva is entirely dependent on God, or Vishnu, who is identical to Brahman. He essentially divides reality into two fundamental categories, things that are dependent and things that are independent. The only thing that is independent is Vishnu, and everything else is dependent on him, sustained by him and created by him. Quote, the Lord Vishnu is the only independent thing. This god is not the attributeless Brahman of Advaita Vedanta. It is Saguna Brahman, Brahman with attributes entirely. Vishnu is a personal god with exalted attributes fitting of a god, not some impersonal abstract reality. Thus, in Dvaita Vedanta, Brahman is not the reality of all things like in writers like Shankara, Brahman in the form of Vishnu with attributes is a god that is different from ourselves and the created world. So we have reached the entirely other side of the spectrum by this point. Rather than being the ultimate reality and true essence of all things, Brahman or Vishnu is here transcendent and a force outside of ourselves to which we must turn in worship. Quote, as stated in the Paramasruti, the wise recognize that the universe is known and protected by Vishnu, Therefore it, or the universe, is proclaimed to be real, but Hari alone is supreme. This brings Madhva a lot closer to what many would consider a classical monotheism, but his theology is also quite different in some ways from religions like Christianity. 
To Madhva, God is the efficient or instrumental cause of all things, but not their material cause. This is philosophical jargon to say that Vishnu did not create the world ex nihilo, or from nothing. He didn't create the matter and stuff which makes up everything. Rather, the material stuff, known as Prakriti, has always existed as such, and Vishnu only forms this matter and causes this matter to become specific things. This is a little more similar to the demiurge or craftsman in Plato's Timaeus. Additionally, there are other principles that are also eternal aside from God, such as time or Kala, but his main point still stands. Vishnu is the Supreme Lord, who is the only independent reality, and all other dependent reality is dependent on him, thus different from him, and as he alluded to in the quote before, it is ultimately real. The world around us is entirely real to Madhva. It is not maya or illusion based on ignorance or superimposition, but a true reality that can be known directly through perception. This can be seen especially in Madhva's epistemology or theory of knowledge. The Vedantins and all other schools of Hindu thought are heavily concerned with what is known as the pramanas, the means of true knowledge. But they disagreed on what it constituted. What is it that can give us true knowledge of the world as it is, or especially of the Brahman and the Atman? As we saw in the episode on Shankara and Advaita, he believed that the only true pramana or means of knowledge when it comes to the Brahman was scripture, in other words, the Vedas and Upanishads. Because our common view of the world is essentially based on ignorance and misunderstanding, we cannot trust our senses or deductions to tell us anything about the ultimately real. Instead, we must rely on revealed and inspired scripture to guide us. But Madhva is significantly more inclusive when it comes to what counts as a pramana. To Madhva, there are primarily a few different means of knowledge or pramanas. Kevala pramana, which is direct knowledge of an object as it is, and then there is anupramana, which is indirect knowledge and the instruments with which direct knowledge is reached. And these instruments are divided into three main categories. Firstly, there is pratyaksha, which is essentially sense perception. All of our senses, including the thinking mind, experiences real objects in the world outside ourselves and can deduce truth claims about them. The self or soul of the individual, known as both Atman and as the Jiva, are entirely separated from Brahman ontologically, but they still have a connection. To Madhva, the soul is like a mirror image of the Brahman or Vishnu, so it contains indirect traces of God, but in a more real sense, they are of course not the same thing. Other than Pratyaksha or perception, the Pramanas include Anumana or defectless inference, in other words of making logical deductions based on one's perception, like claiming that where there is smoke there is fire, for example, a very famous example from Indian philosophy. And lastly there is Agama or scripture. Scripture is a central means of knowledge to Madhava just as it was for Shankara, both the Shruti or revealed text like the Vedas, but also Smirti or human written but divinely inspired text like the Puranas, Mahabharata, Bhagavad Gita and the Brahma Sutras. But as you can see, Madhva includes many other pramanas as well, and he seems to actually prioritize pratyaksha or perception as the most important, followed by scripture, which really shows you how much of a realist he was. You can have direct true knowledge of reality by simply experiencing it as it is. There is no illusion or superimposition involved here. But things are of course a lot more complicated than this as well. Madhvacharya's ontology and epistemology are 
very hierarchical and every branch or category also has a number of sub-branches and it just goes on like that for a long time. We're not going to get into the complexities of Madhva's many different categories and hierarchies today, um, instead focusing on his main arguments and the general uh, statements that he makes, but if you're interested in studying this deeper then check out the literature or sources in the description of this episode. So we've already established how Madhva differs from other thinkers like Shankara in some very fundamental ways. God or Brahman is full of infinite attributes. Uh, he is a personal god who is different from the world and sustains the world. The world itself is not maya or illusion, it is absolutely real and can be known directly through things like sense perception. Thus, even though Madhva and Shankara are reading the exact same sources like the Upanishads and the Brahma Sutras, they are coming to very, very different conclusions. And all this comes from Madhva's essential focus on worship and devotion, known as bhakti. Just like Ramanuja before him, Madhva belonged to the Vaishnavite tradition of devotional worship to the god Vishnu in particular, as well as his avatars and incarnations like Krishna and Rama. Shankara and the Advaitins don't belong to this tradition in the same way, which is what allows them to put a lower emphasis on devotion. But as a Vaishnavite, Madhva cannot accept this position. All these ideas that he has is aimed at the ultimate goal, to allow the person to have a proper view of the world, of God and their relationship to each other, so that he can respond properly to his position in that reality and reach moksha, or liberation. But what is that response, and what is the role of the human being? Well, in a way, we've already answered that question. The role of the human being in this whole scheme is to devote his or herself to Vishnu and worship him. Quote, Bhakti, devotion, comes from knowledge of the greatness of God and is the strongest in all circumstances when compared to others. Moksha is achieved by this and in no other manner. Just like basically all other thinkers in Hinduism, Madhva is primarily concerned with reaching liberation or moksha, to be freed from the cycle of rebirths or samsara. And as we saw earlier, different schools of Vedanta interpreted how this goal is achieved in different ways. So Shankara's Advaita Vedanta said that it is jnana yoga, the yoga of knowledge, of knowing one's own identity with the Brahman and the Brahman's all-encompassing nature as the only reality that exists. But Madhva, as we've seen, was quite clear on the matter that it is only bhakti yoga, or the yoga of devotion, that ultimately leads to liberation. He doesn't say that bhakti is the only important thing though. The other yogas like karma yoga and jnana yoga are still important steps on the way. What begins with karma yoga, the yoga of actions and rituals, jnana yoga, that of knowledge, is a required step to reach true devotion. One must have proper knowledge about the nature of God and the self and the relationship, as being separate for example, to be able to properly devote oneself to worship. But at the end of the day, these are only prerequisites that lead to the end goal and the only true way of being liberated, which is bhakti. Bhakti is devoted worship of God, in this case Vishnu, in pure love and adoration. Praying to God, making offerings, all the things that come with devotional practice, that is the only way to liberation. 
And even then, it's not like the human being has control over when moksha arrives. It isn't a case where one is devoted enough to God that there is some kind of point one reaches when there is sudden liberation. Instead, all the devotional practices only prepare the practitioner to receive the grace, or prasada, of Vishnu. It is ultimately God who decides when the person reaches liberation, further emphasizing the ultimate power of God over all things. Once this has been reached, the jiva can live a blissful existence without rebirth in a heavenly world that in itself has various different grades and stations in relation to closeness to Vishnu. Perhaps it is here that the great teacher Madhva himself resides. Not only did he, of course, reach moksha according to Dvaita tradition, but as we saw earlier, he was also considered the very avatar of the god Vayu. Indeed, according to the hagiographies, Madhva never actually died, but it is said that he simply disappeared one day, vanished to never be seen again. A fitting end, perhaps, to a figure that is as mysterious and charismatic as he was. Madhva's interpretation of Vedanta, which became known primarily as Dvaita Vedanta, became a significant intellectual force in Hinduism. His huge focus on devotional worship of a personal god that stood above creation was very attractive to a lot of people, and he managed to challenge the great schools of previous figures like Shankara and Ramanuja. Originally, Madhva's Vedanta was pretty confined to the region where he lived and was born in Karnataka, but eventually it also spread all across India and today has also spread really all across the world and has influenced various different movements, even contemporary ones like the Hare Krishna movement. He and Ramanuja's Vishishtadvaita have tended to appeal more to the general masses and Hindu practitioners due to their interpretation of a personal god who can be worshipped, much more so than the heavy and scholarly thought of Shankara. But all of these schools, as well as various other ones that we haven't talked about in this series, make up the diverse tapestry that is Vedanta and Hinduism. Through these episodes, we have seen how varied ideas can be even within the same philosophical tradition, and that it is useless to make the kind of generalizations that many people tend to make when talking about a religion like Hinduism or Sanatana Dharma. Even though this was the last episode in this trilogy, there is a lot more to explore, of course, and we will continue to dive deeper into the many fascinating religious traditions and intellectual currents in India in future episodes. I'll see you next time. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.